Hello, Thomas King. <laughs> hey, Jeremy. <laughs> um, thanks for coming on the little chat room. Thank you for having me. Um, we met at my friend, our mutual friend's dinner party the other night, and then crazily, coincidentally, you went to the school that my little sister taught at. That's right. Uh, um, which was a bit of a spin out, <laughs> and and w- you only briefly told me what your work was, but I had immense fascination in it. I think it's super important, so I wanted to like unravel it a bit and explore why you're doing it. Um, and first up, what is it? What is it that you do for people? Well, I mean, first of all, I think I'm just a, I'm a young person trying to affect positive change in the world. And I've gone on a bit of a journey uh, exploring different ways to try and do that. And yeah, where I've ended up is in the alternative protein space. So meat without livestock. Right. Wow. And how far down the track of that particular thing are you? A couple of years, isn't it? Yeah, two and, a, two and a half, yeah. almost three years. And you're running this organization that helps um, meat producers and non-meat producers make effectively facilitate their better production of their product? Yeah, so we run... So the organization that I run is called Food Frontier. Yeah. And we're Australia and New Zealand's independent think tank and industry uh, advisor on alternative proteins. And alternative proteins is either folks who are replicating meat from plants or producing real meat through cell culturing technology. Right. So removing the animal from the equation um, and therefore a lot of the adverse impacts that come with traditional meat production. Um, So yeah, it's been a, it's it's an interesting journey. We work with a whole bunch of different folks across the supply chain from entrepreneurs and scientists through to, you know, established meat manufacturers wanting to diversify. We work with Woolies, um, you know, agricultural groups and government. And it's, essentially it's the future for protein production because the current one is quite unsustainable um, from, what I, from what little I know. Yeah, so we've got an enormous challenge in that we are going to have almost 10 billion people by mid-century in the world uh, and you know, uh, large populations in middle-income um, and developing countries that are eating more meat and aspiring to eat more meat into coming decades um, and already our food system is at I the like brink. the idea of aspiring. I'm well, aspiring to eat more it's meat. It's true, right? Like, yeah, you know, we're, 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 um, <laughs> we're in the Asia-Pacific. We've got half the world's population sitting just north of us with a, you know, steep meat consumption trajectory because mm. um, meat holds really complex social, cultural, economic significance around the world. So if it's, you know, here in Australia, you probably grew up eating a lot of it and therefore it's ingrained in your culture and lifestyle and palate Mm. Um, but if you're a you know Chinese consumer you probably didn't grow up eating a hell of a lot of meat unless you were particularly affluent Mm. but you certainly aspire to eat more because of the status and significance that it has in that cultural setting Mm -hmm. well you know a lot about and I remember you chatting about the different elements of what makes a protein or meat alternative um, significant in terms of the texture, the cost, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Can you run us through those things? I found that interesting. We don't eat meat because of how it's produced. Most people eat it in spite of that fact. Mm. Um, people eat meat because of the end product and the experience that it provides. So the taste, um, the texture, the cultural significance, the convenience, the familiarity, yeah. uh, and ultimately, meat is just a combination of proteins, fats, water, and trace minerals. Now. Granted, it's a complex, complex combination of those things, but it's just a combination of those fundamental building blocks. Yeah. All those same things are found in the plant kingdom. And so what a lot of these different groups of entrepreneurs and scientists and chefs around the world are, are doing is um, 
looking to the plant kingdom to try and find those same elements that replicate meat at that sensory level right. and combine them in such a fashion to try and offer the same experience uh, without the same adverse consequences in Amazing. terms of health, environment, you know, ethics, etc. Um, or on the f- in the field of cellular agriculture, they're saying, well, could we produce actual animal meat, um, conventional meat that people you know know and love and grew up with, without having an animal in the middle of that equation? Because all meat is is a, is a combination of cells. Uh, at the moment, we grow conventional meat on the skeletal system of an animal. Uh, but the challenge is that we have to feed a whole bunch of resources into that animal. Mm. Most of those resources and calories get um, lost in the conversion into the meat mm. because of things like energy expenditure, mm. um, the development of a skeletal system, all the <laughs> stuff we don't really need or want yeah. um, to get that end product, which you know, for a grain-fed animal could be anywhere from 2 to 20 kilograms of grain in for one kilogram of meat. You know, UN Water says it's around 15,000 litres of water for a kilo of beef. It's insane. So it's just so a, it's a really resource inefficient mm. process, mm. Um, but it's all we've had, right? So from, you know, 10,000 years ago when we started domesticating animals to, you know, fast forward to uh, 100 years ago, 150 years ago when meat started to become more prevalent, but was still seen as a luxury item even in, in developed countries. So it was, you know, the Sunday roast or festive celebrations where we were eating less than half of what we do today. Fast forward to the last few seconds of human history and we're now, you know, the average Westerner is eating around 100, 100 kilograms of the stuff per person every year. Um, and so wow. this, this system, this resource-intensive system has been scaled and is requiring all this land, all this water, you know, issues in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and methane, um, the intensive production models that have had to come about in order to produce meat at affordable prices have meant cramming animals into tighter spaces, um, you know, selectively breeding them so they grow unnaturally fast, feeding them antibiotics so that they grow even faster and they don't die from the diseases that, you know, these sorts of environments can promote. And so it's a system that, that is breaking, um, mm. but... We've got a growing population and we've got meat consumption rising globally. Mm. And so the question is, if people love sausages and burgers and meatballs and dumplings, but we can't afford to continue relying only on traditional methods of production, how do we satisfy that demand? Mm. Um, And that's why I got so excited about this space, the concept of giving people what they want, meeting them where they're at, um, without the same adverse consequences because simply telling people to not eat meat or eat less meat or just eat more fruit and veg which you know health authorities have been telling us to do for decades and like 5.1 percent of aussies eat the recommended intake of fruit and veg Mm -hmm. um is just not going to work in the time frame that we need a, a, a pretty large systems shift it's fascinating i mean two questions one why why are you particularly what compelled you to care so much about this stuff you know like what why, why do you even care at all <laughs> <laughs> so i started as a very passionate and naive teenage activist before yeah. it was fashionable yeah. um <laughs> before the greta thunbergs yeah. um no i i yeah i was i've always had a love of um the natural world and um, other species and and had a lot of curiosity as a kid um, and, and would always yeah sort of 
think about um, what I could do towards uh, affecting change on issues that I felt were important. And then that sort of translated into into action when I was about, uh, I was 13 going on 14. And I learned about the, the issue of unsustainable palm oil production in Southeast Asia. Right. Um, and was, yeah, just really... Um, frustrated and angry by what I'd seen and learnt about um, large-scale deforestation and what that was doing to species and ind- indigenous communities, and the fact that the cause of it was found in you know half of all products that we buy at supermarkets here in Australia, countries like Australia. So I wanted to try and increase awareness. My friends and family and those around me didn't know about this, and um, I created a platform, a website, a campaign about the issue, which started really small um, and then and then picked off within about a year and went global uh, and became the highest ranking site on that topic in the world. Oh, wow. And I learned a lot at a very young age about the uh, complexities and the politics of these issues. Yeah. You know, going in very young, I saw things very black and white. Yeah. I wanted there to be a silver bullet solution. Yeah. Um, and it didn't take long for me to realize that's just not the case with any of these issues. They're yeah. really complex social and cultural, um, you know, economic factors Mm. involved. And so, uh, anyway, I I proceeded to to join a few different organizations and work on initiatives um, across a number of continents uh, in conservation, in poverty alleviation, a bit in animal welfare. And, yeah, over that time, realized that time and time again, I was um, coming up against our, our food system as a key factor underpinning essentially everything I was trying to solve. Right. Um, in particular, a food system that relies heavily on industrial animal agriculture as a means to, to feed the world. Right. Um, and so, yeah, that's when I became interested learning about what was being done in food tech because one thing I'd also learned over that time was that having focused on issues uh, predominantly of, of consumer change and behavior change, you can't just tell people not to do things. You know, boycotts... Um, are really effective in what they're trying to achieve. And if you can offer a viable alternative solution, not only from a consumer standpoint, but something that business can get behind, that governments can diversify into, um, you engage whole groups of influencers and decision makers you weren't otherwise able to in addressing the same problem. Um, So, yeah, I was in the States uh, speaking at an event called Nexus. I don't know if you've heard of Nexus um, in New York a few years ago. And on that same trip, set up meetings with some of these food tech companies who I'd started to learn about and read about um, back home in Australia. Uh, And, yeah, met some of the founders, tried some of the food, toured facilities in San Francisco, um, learn about the tech, learn about the investment from... You know, Gates, Branson, Google, Yahoo—the biggest meat corporations in the world—and just left feeling hugely excited um, by the potential for impact and the momentum that was you know, starting to build in the states. Only to return down under and realize that essentially nothing was happening here in the same space, yeah. um, and very little in the broader Asia Pacific region, which, yeah, like I said, is home to 60% of humanity um, and represents the greatest portion of meat consumption increase expected over coming decades. So we, wow. we need to be diversifying. Wow. It's so fascinating. And it's amazing that you, what stands out to me is like incredible that you go from activism or like distaste about something that's wrong in the world um, to understanding it and then 
building a system that facilitates it changing. I think a lot of people get angry or pissed off at what the problems are in the world, but few have the ability to transform that into sustainable new systems or, or systems that change systems that will change our current systems. And you kind of, from what little I know, you're doing that with, for example, meat producers and um, helping them diversify their product by starting to produce non-meat-based proteins. And that would even be a very interesting conversation because like, that would require, like, I think you briefly said before, like a lot of empathy to be able to come to their party and understand their intentions and um, help them make that shift. Um, coming from a place of like once an activist about it and you know, more black and white to now more mature meeting them where they're at. You know, I think uh, that's that's that characteristic in itself. I find very, very admirable in any human being to be able to to do that. And I'm fascinated w- what your journey has been like emotionally and um, mentally and spiritually to to adapt to that. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole discussion in itself. Um, I yeah, totally get what you're saying, and <clears throat> as someone who very much led from my heart um, starting out. It took me a while to balance it out with my head. And I think that there's a lot of folks out there who are very passionate or very angry or very disheartened by the current state of our world and society and um, things that they think should be different that are operating mostly from, from here, from, you know, the heart and the emotion. And, the, and it's only when we balance that um, emotion and energy with intellect and problem solving and strategy that we can actually channel that into areas that have effective, um, you know, outcomes that, right. that we can actually shift these systems. Um, and it's hard. <laughs> and that's the reason most people don't pursue that is because it gets, it, it, it's, you know, you've got to work within the system to change the system. And the system, you know, systems change often. Um, there's this perception that it's, that it's difficult and it, and it is. But at the end of the day, systems are just groups of people. Right, um, and people, uh, you know, uh, uh, yes, they might hold a certain title, wear a certain hat, but at the end of the day, they're human beings. And if you can connect with them, if you can help bring them along and enfranchise them in a vision for how things can be and the role that they can play in um, getting us there, then I think people would be surprised about the kinds of conversations and connections that can be had right. even with people who are on the complete opposite end of the spectrum or other side of the fence in terms of a particular debate or worldview um so you do i imagine you do that by like ha- having the facts and the stats that appeal to them in order to make them more profitable or um be- yeah i mean effective advocacy is is who am i talking to what do they care about and how do i help them fulfill that whilst advancing <laughs> our own mission um <laughs> and, and and that's fundamentally you know what what we do in various areas, but it is genuinely about caring uh, about the person that you're sat across from. You know, when I walk into a, a agricultural conference and stand in front of a hundred cattle and sheep farmers to talk about livestock free meat, which some people think is fucking insane. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I've got to think about who are these people? What's their life experience? Where are they coming from? And how can I meet them where they're at and help them, um, understand where the world's heading and what that means for them. And those aren't always easy discussions, um, but we do try and find the overlap in that Venn diagram. You know, where is there that common ground where we can 
take what we're doing and and present it to an audience like that in such a way that says here are the opportunities for you to participate mm. or you know here's the advantages um for you in your sector or um, occupation but it's beyond occupation as well you know when you're talking with folks like farmers it, it, it's it's their identity right. it's their it's their livelihood it's their family it's um you know belonging and identity are powerful things mm. and and you can see why people like that um and in other industries that are changing and and being disrupted are responding with fear um because the, they feel like what fundamentally forms who they are is being taken from them mm. or that there's that threat mm. of it being taken from them. Mm. So, so yeah, we might go into a room like that and talk about the potential um, to produce legumes and other high protein crops that can be used in applications like plant-based meat alternatives. Um, you know, farmers are business people. They've got a piece of land. They want to make money from it. Um, and if you can help them understand ways in which they can diversify to um, continue to you know make profit and utilize the resources they have available, often they're willing to listen. Yeah, you know, there's a spectrum of responses. You get mm. the more open-minded ones, and then you get some older gentlemen down the other end of the spectrum asking, you know, relevant but very provocative questions. Mm-hmm. But that's to be expected. Mm. So it, it is really an exercise in empathetic communication. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had that. You know, I, I've I've learnt that lesson and learned, I guess, how to, how to do that over, um, over years working in the social impact space. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, I can think of a whole, a handful of different sort of examples, but the, these instances where on the surface you might see a certain group of people as fundamentally different. Um, but actually if you can put that aside and stop othering, which we're damn good at as human <laughs> beings, um, you realize there's far more in common, you know, you have far more in common. I, mm. Um, I don't know if I, there's a couple of examples that come to mind of this, yeah, but one was, so I, d- I did a project in um, Greenland in 2015, the Arctic. Mm. Uh, it was a climate change um, documentary. So they had five youth representatives from three countries and we all flew in and this, there was this short film being made that was shown at the COP21 Paris Climate Summit. And uh, we were taking a train from Hamburg to Copenhagen and... Uh, I'd just flown from the other side of the world. I was tired. I was exhausted. I was hangry. I was just not in a great place. Um, and we boarded this train and it was really packed. And as we were like waiting, you know, there were more people coming on. And this was like a four-hour train trip. So, you, the ones where you book a seat, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and there were just pe- just so many people, people sharing seats, people standing up in the aisles. It was just packed. You couldn't get through the carriage, luggage, children, baby. And I was like, what? And we just got so angry at all these people who clearly hadn't booked a seat um, and were making, you know, m- my journey and my experience more difficult. Mm. And I was just, you know, the train took off and we're half an hour in and I'm just, you know, when you just, you get in a bad mood and yeah, it can be hard to totally. get out of that space. So yeah. I was just, I was, you know, I was fuming inside <laughs> trying to distract myself and, you know, um, I, it, it hit me who these people were. They were um, Syrian refugees who had fled their home countries out of fear of being killed <laughs> and, and we're fleeing across Europe to try and, you know, wow. find a safe place to live. 
And it was like the universe slapping me in the face <laughs> with this like lesson um, of, of not, you know, jumping to assumptions and, and, and othering people. And, um, and I, you know, sort of, you know, let my guard down a little bit and my energy started to shift and my mindset started to shift. And, you know, within an hour and a half, I was playing with some of the kids. I was getting to know one of the families, you know, the train went on a, on a ferry over the um, river and we all went up to the top deck and watched the sunset and we're taking photos. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was teaching a little boy, Zane, how to use my um, DSLR and he was taking photos of his family, you know. That's so sweet. And, and it's in those moments that, you know, you, you realize, like I spoke, mm. <laughs> I don't speak any Arabic. They did, spoke very little English. Um, so there was a bit of a language barrier, but uh, by the end of that experience, um, it was very clear that these people, you know, they were the same. Mm. They, they were exactly the same. Mm. Um, yeah, they'd come from somewhere different and, um, and, and whatever. But I, I think, yeah, I think particularly in today's world, and I hope that there's one thing that humanity has learned from the last few years um, and the era that we're heading into, it's, it's the need um, to listen and mm. to be empathetic and to understand where one another are coming from because mm. the world we're now living in, you know, globalization and the advancement of technology and just the intensity of things, um, you, you know, it's understandable to see why some folks are responding to that out of fear mm. um, and why so many you know, extremely conservative representatives around the world are being elected. And, you know, it's this knee jerk response. Mm. Um, Mm. But we need to, we need to stop. We need to listen. We need to seek to understand one another if Mm. we're actually to move forward in a way that um, allows us to have a a functional, you know, more harmonious society. Um, So awesome, man. So what, what do you do with those, in those situations with your, um, your emotional response when it gets triggered like I mean that may, maybe less than that one like, like it, you kind of open yourself up to look for a sign from the universe that you need to learn something from the situation or how do you like curb your enthusiastic emotions <laughs> <laughs> um, well it's trying to override your fight or flight caveman brain right mm. which is which is can be hard because um, we're hardwired to see difference and to fear difference, you know, this person's not part of my tribe or they're, you know, um, a threat to me or whatever. Um, even if we're not consciously thinking that, we're probably subconsciously thinking that. And so the only way to, to do that is to try and override that system and try and reset those pathways through um, proactively entering those kinds of situations with a different kind of mindset and belief system um, that acknowledges this is you know another human being or this is another being mm. of another species that you know um also wants to live free from suffering and mm. has the desire to experience joy and happiness and you know a fulfilling life um and so if you go in with that kind of mindset from the start uh and try and maintain that and it's about you know awareness and consciousness and mm. and like with anything separating yourself your awareness from your thought processes and beliefs so you can actually observe them Mm. and choose to change them and reset them and override them Mm. um it's when we're living in a state of reaction that um that those fear-based responses come out and it's it's almost like this accumulation of stress and suppress like you the the more stress you've received and suppression you've put on that stress the less effective you are in um 
being aware or present enough to really actually be in the moment of someone, I guess. I mean, that's what I found in the pit when I look around. Like if I, I'm, and I'm very like, very um, obvious. If I'm in a mood, it's very obvious, you know, like right. it's like I'm very transparent in that to, to my detriment a lot because I, it means I can't just be nice and put on face. Right. I, 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 um, but if I am being nice, it's, I'm 100% there with you <clears throat> and it's not insincere. But I think yeah. um, a lot of people, which, which it obviously have its weak points, but it strengths as well because you know, you know what you're getting. <clears throat> well, I find I think a lot of people put on a lot of face because they don't know how to process their stresses or um, be authentically there because they, yeah, they just don't know how to, they just suppress their stresses, don't you find? Like what's some, what's some things that you've done or you, you've seen that works for you in terms of releasing these stresses and not suppressing them, allowing them up and having that awareness of them, as you're saying? <clears throat> well, I mean, for me... Um, meditation sounds like... Yeah, med- meditation and mindfulness. Um, you know, if you can integrate practices in your life that mean um, you're not allowing those stresses to to accumulate as easily, um, you get on top of it, uh, which for me is exactly that. It's about that separation. Mm-hmm. You know, how can I become aware of my own thought processes and emotions mm-hmm. so I can choose how I respond to them? Mm. Um, you know, free will is more than just what you wear and, and what you eat, um, you know, and how you show up in the world. It's how you respond, um, to, you know, people and situations around you. And a lot of people think that, that they don't have that power, that they're just, um, you know, they're led by their emotions. They're led by their thought processes and their belief Mm. systems. But actually, if you can create enough awareness to acknowledge, what those things are and when they come up, you can start to um, choose whether you play that out yeah. or whether you choose a, a different option. Yeah, yeah. It's like a <laughs> yeah. choose your own adventure book. Yeah. Um, but most people aren't in a place where that's possible because they haven't built that muscle because they are just responding um, to life around them. Um, so yeah, I, I look, I've tried... Uh, at various points over the last few years to get into a regular meditation practice it's um you know in the world we live in and i've you know led a life of a lot of doing in the last decade um it you know it can be hard to try and create that space and Mm. to really center yourself but i think that um if you live that kind of demanding life it's probably more important Mm. um Mm. how do you find just in terms of vulnerability like how do you create space to um, process you know stress like do you have a loved one or fr- particular friends that you turn to Cause I'm, I'm, I'm quite aware at the moment I don't know if it's relevant for you but it's relevant for me like the, the the power that comes in being vulnerable and being okay with your vulnerability and the strength that comes with that rather than it being seen as weakness for um, you know like it's almost like this confidence that I'll be alright allows you to share your vulnerability or be vulnerable um but i think i just think that's need like i'd lo- I'd love there to be more community i guess sense or like i suppose that's what church was probably good for back in the day and still is for a lot of people is like having community around personal development or community around um yeah, nurturing the soul um resolving your issues and there obviously is loads of different communities. Like for AA, there's, that's a community. For 
um, religious organizations in this community. And, but, you know, I think for, I, I could be wrong, but like for people like you and I, I don't, maybe meditation, there's a community around and some things, but there's not really, um, you know what I'm trying to say? There's yeah, a, yeah, it's, yeah. it's not like a really, a group thing <laughs> for independent people, <laughs> right? <laughs> spiritual people. Cause like, yeah. yeah. Like it's yeah, and I think this is a big reason that, that we're seeing so much loneliness in the world we now live in, particularly with us not having to physically connect as much. It's more of an effort to do that because of you know technology and the devices we live on. We're in these little virtual realities in the palm of our hand and we think that's connection and it feels like connection. We're getting all the same mm. you know, hormones every time our mm. friends like our posts, but um, it's not the same thing. It's not that, that deep human connection, which... You're right. Typically throughout human history has been places like church and religious communities. Mm. Um, and with a lot of people now moving away from that, it is an interesting question to contemplate. How, how do we um, build community in the, in the, in the 21st century? Mm. Um, and look at something that I've been, yeah, trying to, trying to work out more recently. I have realized that through having pursued 60 to 70 hour work weeks for the last two years. Um, there are huge aspects of my life that have been suffocated. Mm. Um, and I, you know, have experienced a lot of disconnect and, and loneliness at times. Mm. Um, when you're traveling a lot, if you live alone, um, I have lots of great friends, um, Mm. granted a lot of them are interstate or overseas. Mm. Um, but yeah, unless you really make that effort to, either build community or be part of existing established communities um, and find that time for connection, it can be very easy to f- fall into a place of, uh, yeah, of, of, of disconnect. Yeah, disconnect. Um, but, you know, I try and no matter who I'm interacting with or what settings I'm in, bring that sort of um, open and, um, you know, vulnerable and empathetic approach um, because there's opportunity for connection everywhere. And I guess yeah. that's what I'm saying with these folks like, you know, livestock farmers who a lot of folks say, you know, what, what the hell are you thinking walking into those kind of rooms or like, sure, you don't get anywhere or, mm. you know, aren't you terrified? And it's like, yeah, okay, I can see how on the surface um, it could be seen that what I'm doing is, you know, at odds with or adversarial in a way um, to livestock production. But um, at the end of the day, yeah, these are just, these are people with all Mm. the same sort Mm. of hopes and dreams and fears and aspirations that I have. Mm. They were born into a different setting. You know, it's like I had a conversation with a friend years ago around the greyhound racing scandal that, that happened, the live baiting. So, you know, they were putting kittens and piglets and whatever on these lures and, um, letting dogs attack them to to um, to quote unquote blood them right train them and you know a friend was just going off about how the you know, how vile these humans are to be able to do that and you know kind of scum of the earth type rhetoric and I said to her you know I if I was born into a family in a regional area where that was greyhound racing was our livelihood. Um, and that was what you did in order to train your dogs, in order to, for them to compete and for you to be able to make money. I would probably participate in that, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not that they're fundamentally bad people. Mm. Um, you know, I, another story that comes to mind, I, I did a school speaking tour years ago 
Uh, and as part of that, I went and spoke at an all boys juvenile prison. Wow. And that was interesting. And I was genuinely terrified <laughs> going in. But, How old were you when you did that? Um, 18, maybe. Wow. Yeah. Um, I, I, so I just, I'd gotten this award through the Australian of the Year Awards and I was sort of using that platform to go and wow. talk about my work and journey. And, um, you know, so there were these, these boys and men sort of, I think, 17 to 21 um, who I, I was going to speak to. And I arrived and they, you know, briefed me and you can't, you can't take valuables in. And um, you're going to be speaking to groups of 10 boys. You know, typically I'd speak to anywhere from 100 to 1,000 um, students, but they can't have more than 10 boys in one space at one time. Um, you know, some of these boys are in here for sexual assault, armed robbery, da 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 Here's Terry. Here's your guard. Don't leave Terry. <laughs> you know, off you go. <laughs> and I'm like, holy shit. Oh god. <laughs> anyway, I, I I you know walked into this um, classroom and they and none of them uh, had to be there. So it was all their their choice to be there. Right. And um, they all kind of sat down and I had a, a holding slide up there and and there were a couple of boys sort of leaned back in their chair and they're like, so what are you here? You know, what, what are you doing here? And I said, ah, oh, I'm you know, here to talk about my work in social environmental space and da 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 and I've done stuff in this area and animal welfare and this and that and they stopped and they're like huh you know you're the reason we're in here and I'm like <laughs> what? what? <laughs> and it's because I mentioned animals and he said we were caught dog fighting and someone videoed it and submitted it to the police and that's why we're in juvie and I'm like, huh, <laughs> tell me more. You know, I just started, like, started asking questions, um, not really knowing how to respond. Anyway, I start my presentation and they're being a bit sort of disruptive and they called out a few times and the teacher ended up booting them out. Mm. And I saw them two minutes later come up to the door and they're negotiating with her. Um, and they, she let them back in and they sat down and they shut up. Um, but I genuinely didn't know how they were going to respond um, and at the end of the presentation, I'd say maybe seven of the 10 boys came up, shook my hand, thanked me for coming and for, you know, presenting, um, just the, the, you know, kindest, most considerate sort of, you know, response. Mm. Um, and there was one guy that came up, uh, he was the last guy on the line and he was, I'm, si- I'm almost six foot four and he was taller than me, <clears throat> built like a hat, like just, just stocky kind of guy mm. neck tattoos up each side um, and he goes you know thank you so much for coming you know I'm so, so inspired by your story and you've come all this way to talk to us I'm so grateful and it was, it was just the most heartfelt response and then he goes um, and, and, and those boys I tell you what those fucking boys almost punched their fucking heads in but I didn't and the, the staff go yes Steve good Steve well you know it's like resetting you know previous behavioural patterns um, but it was just the most heartening kind of response from these guys mm. who'd clearly been born into particular circumstances mm. had particular challenges that had led them down particular paths mm. they weren't any better or worse as human beings than I am, mm. um, they just had, you know, more unfortunate circumstances or upbringing. They didn't have the connection or the love or the support that they needed um, or had certain socioeconomic status, you know, um, growing up or wh- whatever it might have been. Mm. 
And so, yeah, it's those sorts of experiences I think that have taught me the, the, those lessons around um, the fact that we have far, far more in common than we do differences, even though on the surface it may not look that way. Mm. And if we can employ the empathy and human decency to actually dig below the surface and to be open enough to allow those connections to happen, um, I think people would be pleasantly surprised. Mm, mm. Man, it's amazing. I think that, that one of like having empathy or really understanding people's environment like and what they're brought into or grew up around is goes a long way i think and i I like that example you gave of the um the the lady saying how vile it is vile it is with the greyhound situation because it's like you probably would do the same like if you grew up if that's all you knew it's like i grew up in a really extreme christian sect and that's all i knew so i my way my worldview is like i couldn't blame myself for having seen everyone outside that church is other or not, not as good as because there's such a strong indoctrination of where we're the chosen people. And so it's like, it's crazy until you unpin that. And that's a painful process often. But that's just like one example of like everyone's conditioning up and up in their upbringing. And it's only when we really listen to one another and, um, and to take a like a slight a bigger perspective than this otherness. I think that's a real key thing as well in in being connected as people and having shared purpose. And because I mean, the utopian invi- idea is that we can just be more together than harmonious. Yeah, harmonious. Um, and I think that's an intelligent evolutionary trajectory for us. It is. It requires us to evolve past the the. The, the wiring that we've inherited, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, Which is, more, you, yeah. You know, we're 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 we're, we're, <laughs> we're monkey. Well, we're primates walking around in suits, driving cars, and and whatever. Like, if you consider um, <laughs> technological advancement having moved so much uh, more quickly than our sort of you know, biological physiological evolution, mm. um, it, it, it's yeah, that combination is just not going to work it's what's going to um, lead us to a point of extinction unless we uh, evolve as human beings to override those systems and those those fear-based responses Mm, mm. um, which no longer serve us Mm. Um, because because all throughout history that that concept of othering has been central to all forms of violence and subjugation and domination Mm. um whether it's you know people of color or women or people of certain um religious minorities you know you could even extend that to other species to an extent um Mm. in 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 how we you know treat certain certain um animals today that Mm. they have a certain purpose and that they are you know different from us and that they belong to us and that blah 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 so Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's something we re- I think we really need to, to focus on and overcome mm-hmm. if we're to evolve as a species. And what would you say are the key pillars for anyone wanting to practice that? You know, like in because it's it's kind of it's greater self awareness. Yeah. Um, it's knowing yourself, knowing yourself better. Um, yeah. I like a few things. So, firstly, I mean, I'm still learning about as we all I I am (laughs) am by no means a guru um in this area but I think the self-awareness is is absolutely key um I think exposing yourself to new experiences new people new places new cultures is also a key piece of it 
Um, and I think challenging your own biases and belief systems because when you realize that fundamentally as human beings all we are is a bundle of belief systems really that's all we are and we're just playing those out every day you know belief system is a, a, a belief is just a story we tell ourselves over and over and over again yeah um, and often we've developed those stories in childhood we've inherited them from our parents we've inherited them from people around us or society more broadly um and it's only when you have the, the self-awareness to actually acknowledge what those beliefs are and start to um, reconsider them and, or reset them that you can evolve at that personal level and overcome a lot of things that are probably holding you back as an individual, mm. but then be able to apply that to all sorts of interactions in your life, including mm. um, yeah, folks that are coming from a completely different place. Yeah, yeah. So... So yeah, it, it, look, it, this, these things are, are not easy, and um, there's a there's no new Bible for it. <laughs> I'm just sort of there. What's the new religion? <laughs> nah, maybe you can create that, Jess. No, no thanks. <laughs> well, that's the whole point. Is carnism? That, yeah, nah, carnival is Yeah, which would be adverse to what um, we want. <laughs> um, no, I think it's. I think it's the the, the thing is the, the, there's no real rule book is there for a lot of this stuff. It's just like self discovery and self inquiry, and um, tuning into something deeper or something purer, I guess, inside ourselves. That's that's um, not st- stress based. <laughs> it's it's promoting liberating our minds from our limitations. Um, all that all that dribble. Yeah, I think um, I think I think if more people considered those bigger questions around who they want to be, the contribution they want to make, the kind of world they want to live in, um, and really followed those through uh, to try and find the answers, we'd live in a very different world. Yeah. And so, again, by having the awareness to be able to contemplate those sorts of things and challenge, yeah. Well, I think it's a bit to do with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You only exactly. start inquiring those things once you've got Correct. all your survival yeah. needs met. A hundred percent. And so the reality is that probably most people in the world that we live in are operating further down in that pyramid where they don't have the luxury mm. to necessarily consider these sorts of things. Mm. I mean, that said, <laughs> the happiest, most fulfilled, kindest people I've ever met are in developing countries, mm. <laughs> are in impoverished settings Mm, um mm. you know i used to be in the poverty alleviation space and if you go to a country like cambodia um and meet some of the villages there and folks who in our eyes have nothing because that's our cultural values lens um you know they have very little in terms of material wealth uh but they have joy and connection and culture and dance and like just so it, it, yeah, we also need to be careful not to impose our um, 100%. sort of cultural lens. Yeah. So, but but yeah, I, I think um, I think regardless of who you are, of what you have or don't have, we can all carve out enough time in our day to try and think a little bit more deeply. Yeah. Um, you know, tread a little bit more carefully, yeah. um, and take steps towards becoming better humans yeah. <laughs> well um thanks i know you got to run in a minute um but thanks just so much for like the work you're doing for humanity i feel like 
I, I support it <laughs> and I appreciate it. And I think I know, I know how hard it is to do like progressive change in the world in a, in a continual ongoing fashion. And you're clearly very, very intelligent. You've done a fuck ton of research around the work that you're going into. And I, know, I even just applaud the fact that you, the amount of work you have to do in order to step into the current system and speak to them on a level that they can understand and it will benefit them is, says a tremendous amount about how much you care about making the change because you know you have to step like 10 steps for the one step that they'll come to the party um at the way i see it anyway um and i think i think that's just fantastic and i'm thanking you for it and um and thanks for sharing the heart of like why you're doing the work i think that's really warming and i mean my heart connects with it and i'm sure other people's will too thank you jess that's really kind <laughs> thank you for all that you're doing as well thanks man